This is Audio Immunity, a podcast about our body's never-ending fight with the outside world. Hi, this is Audio Immunity, recorded on January 3rd, 2018. First episode of 2018. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. My name is Kevin Bonham, and I'm joined, as ever, by Matt Woodruff. Hello, everyone. Good evening. How are you? I'm a little tired, but otherwise pretty good. Recovering from a couple fun New Year's uh, celebrations at the in-laws house in Ohio. So shout out to Columbus, which was minus eight degrees when I woke up yesterday to pack the car to drive That's back damn to Georgia. Cold. It's quite cold. My my God. Yeah. Um, yep. Here in Boston, we are uh, preparing for snowpocalypse tomorrow. One of many that seem to hit this city. Uh, for some reason, uh, the public transit system in a northeast city that every year experiences cold temperatures and large snowstorms just shuts down when it gets cold or there's like an inch of snow. It's It's sad. Isn't it like because the intakes in those old T trains can't really handle the snow? Is that if I remember correctly, they had too much snow going into the train on the air intakes. And I thought to myself, how is that possible? <laughs> How is that not something that an engineer was paid a modicum of money to solve? Right. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, but it's going to be like 7 to 12 inches and crazy high windstorms. Thankfully, as a computational biologist, I don't have to leave my, uh, my home uh, and I can still get work done. This evening, we do not have any of our female hosts. Chaydeen is stuck on kid duty because her husband's on call. Let's see, Camilla, I think, is still in the land of always winter. Yeah, although probably Kate- warmer and less snowy than <laughs> you're about to be. That is true. That is very true. Um, I saw a map recently that showed like uh, differences from average temperature this time of year. Mm-hmm. And because, of course, you know, our our wonderful politicians are claiming that global warming isn't true because it's cold it's outside. Cold. Um, but it's just like this little band of blue, like lower than average temperature in the northeast and Midwest. And then the entire rest of the globe is is red. <laughs> right. But it's Kevin, way above that's, average. That's the, that's the only important parts. That's totally fair. That's totally fair. Um, <laughs> and then Kate, Kate is going to come back. We swear, really, Dr. Franz is going to be joining us. Newly minted Ph.D., but apparently she already has a job and she's already going on a work trip for her new job. So where's she going? That's why she's not here. <laughs> Hell if I know. Know. She didn't yeah. tell. She okay. doesn't tell us anything. <laughs> but uh, this evening I am drinking um, a blah, blah, blah IPA from that's 21st fitting. Amendment Brewery. Yeah, I think so. I think that matches our style here on Audio Immunity, particularly when it's you and me talking about a paper. Yeah. Yep. I'm a little worried about that, actually. <laughs> Uh, This is from 21st Amendment Brewery, which is a great brewery up in New Hampshire. Uh, 21st Amendment being the uh, amendment that repealed prohibition, of course. So uh, it's pretty tasty. It's, you know, not not too crazy. It's an imperial IPA, very high ABV. But um, other than that, pretty standard. And Matt, what are you drinking this evening? Yeah, I decided against it. Um, Mm. I feel like recently, uh, specifically probably in the last five months or so, my ability to secure and decide that I want to drink a beer on a Wednesday night has greatly diminished. And as a New Year's Year's resolution, I should probably try to turn that around. So I'll be Mm. the only person resolved to drink more over the coming year. Yeah, but it's only January 3rd and you've already failed that resolution, Matt. Well, it doesn't have to. I, in aggregate, come on, we're data people okay. here. This is an anomaly. Okay, we can do, we can do the, the mean alcohol consumption over the course 
course of the year. Yeah. Um, okay, we can track that. Right. Um, specifically think, on Wednesdays, actually. Let's, <laughs> right. let's go specifically Wednesday on Wednesdays. Alcohol consumption. Right. Perfect. Um, un- unfortunately, we don't have a good baseline uh, measurement. That's but, true. Let's um, assume it was zero. <laughs> that seems dodgy to me. Um, one thing I was thinking, though, is that we should put a level on Patreon for where our patrons are going to be paying for our beers for each episode. Interesting. Because that would encourage, I think, us to make sure that we're always drinking. Otherwise, they're not going to be getting their money's worth. Um, Interesting. We are up to, on patreon.com slash audio immunity, we are up to over... 10 supporters. Um, Thank you all. I can't remember exactly what the number is, but it's super awesome. We, uh, I recently got the bill. I think I mentioned this in the last episode. I recently paid the bill for our domain registration. I'm about to get the bill for our web hosting. Um, and it's really nice to know that I'm not going to have to pay that out of pocket. I'm not going to have to beg Kate for six months to pay me back uh, her share. Um, all of that's really great. And it's thanks to Patreon supporters. So if you wouldn't mind, if you're listening now and you want to make sure that Matt has a beer every Wednesday night. It's a lot of pressure. Or at least every other Wednesday night. It might be two out of three. Who knows? Things <laughs> might get crazy. Uh, OK, we can make that work. We can we can pay for other people's beer, too. Right. We're not just going to pay for yours. Yeah. Um, head on over to patreon.com slash audio immunity and, uh, you know, drop us drop us 50 cents or a buck per episode. It'd be really great. But since Matt is not drinking tonight, uh, he's going to have to do extra duty on uh, talking about the paper that we're discussing this evening. Also, because it's about B cells and used several terms that I haven't read since grad school, like idiotype. Yeah. And so I just I frankly don't have any idea what's happening. Yeah. Also, because I'm probably um, as I was reading the paper. So first of all, we should mention the title of the paper. It's uh, clonal evolution of autoreactive germinal centers. The first author on the paper is Soren Dane. He's a Dane. Uh, he's he, he's Danish. Uh, wow. That, that's yeah. really bad pun there. Matt. Yeah, no, but he is. Uh, and he actually is now a faculty member over in Daneland. And uh, the last author is Michael Carroll, who full disclosure, there's actually so many disclosures, I think, on this paper <laughs> as I was reading yeah. through. So you know how you have to submit that conflict of, of interest paragraph when you submit a paper? Um, I have I have a lot of conflicts of interest on this paper. Uh, the first is that Soren and I are friends. Um, I He was in my lab as I was finishing up my PhD. He actually was in the lab before I joined the lab. Then he left for a while. And then he came back at the end of my PhD to do another postdoc. Uh, Mike was my PI uh, through my PhD or one of my co-mentors. Um, most of the authors on the paper are people that I know and have talked about science with. Um, so I guess I have been sort of peripherally involved with a lot of the people on this paper. That being said, I'm going to try to be overly harsh in hopes of uh, reaching some sort of objectivity. That's great because I have no idea how rigorous this science is. Yeah. I read it and I was like, you know, all that kind of makes sense, but I have zero idea what any of it means. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, of, it's it's a really cool I mean, I know paper. what it means. Sure, sure. Um, it's actually a really cool paper. Um, it's pretty technically involved. Um, so yeah, if you, tell me about it. I'm actually going to start at the methods here. So these are just the the titles 
of the methods sections, right? So we've got antibodies and staining reagents. That's pretty typical. Genotyping and fax typing, very typical. Chimeras, okay. Additional procedures, don't quite know what that means. Multi-photon imaging and photo activation of explants, right? We just kicked it to a really high technological imaging level. Confetti analysis, we've talked about this before. These are the mice where you can get like 16 uh, photo activatable color combinations, looking at different sulfates and sulfate mapping. Um, we've got bulk sequencing analysis, single cell sequencing analysis, clonal, clonal lineage, lineage determination and inference. I mean, basically, they've got every forward method, probably, I would say, in cellular immunology, at least on the imaging side. Um, so there's a lot of really cool stuff in here, but it really boils down to one simple observation that actually has been talked about for a long time, but I don't think anybody has shown it with nearly the elegance or the accuracy that this shows. And that is that when we're talking about autoimmunity, there's this lack of understanding about what cells are really causing the autoimmune response or are participating in the autoimmune response, right? So uh, we've talked about autoimmunity a lot in the past. Uh, specifically in this paper, we're going to be talking about lupus, which is a model that I'm working on in humans now. And lupus is basically an autoimmune disease that is characterized by a rise in the number of anti-nuclear antibodies, right? So one consistent thing, lupus patient to lupus patient, is that they will all have some sort of autoreactive nuclear antibodies. In other words, you are making antibodies against your own cell nuclei, which just seems like a terrible idea. Yeah, it's not a great idea. Um, and those antibodies can target different things within the nucleus. But one of the hallmarks is you have a tendency to target not only DNA, but also RNA uh, and histone complexes and basically anything that shows up in the nucleus. Yeah, but but DNA and RNA and protein aren't like important things for the body to function, are they? No, not usually. Usually, but <laughs> under specific circumstances, it can really be problematic to have autoreactivity mm. against every cell in your body. So um, a number of manifestations of this disease can come up when it comes into a clinic. And actually, when you talk about lupus, even though you have this very specific anti-nuclear phenotype in these patients, um, the disease itself is actually really polymorphic. Uh, so in order to diagnose someone with lupus, you have this list of 11 different things that they might have. And if you tick off a certain number of those things, I think it's three, then technically you have lupus. Now, you may or may not have the um, typical lupus rash. You may or may not have kidney involvement. You may or may not have skin involvement. Um, but generally speaking, you will have antibodies against nuclear components, right? Now, all that being said, it's always important to distinguish, and this is something we've touched on a little bit, I think, in the show, between ongoing autoimmunity and the trigger to autoimmunity, right? So in ongoing autoimmunity, your immune system has a tendency to feed forward on itself. And we've talked a lot in previous episodes about how that might happen. We've talked about epitope spreading. Um, we've talked about uh, this idea that once you start to break down these tolerance mechanisms, they tend to fall all over each 
each other, right? And so you get new robust responses. Um, that is a different phenomenon from the initial tolerance break, right? Or it, it may be the same phenomenon, but just because you're seeing a certain response six months into an autoimmune reaction doesn't mean that that response was there to begin with. So just because you see double-stranded DNA responses in a full-blown lupus patient doesn't mean that when that patient first broke tolerance, the reason they broke tolerance was because of a double-stranded DNA specific antibody. Does that make sense? It does. I And I think that's, that's a critical point. So maybe I'll just rephrase it. And that is that what we typically can measure, particularly in humans, is an immune response that is uh, abnormal and is self-reactive, but contains a lot of features that are themselves the result of some insult that happened at an unknown time in the past. And we don't are not necessarily measuring that instigating event. And from a prevention standpoint, obviously, what we'd really like to know is what starts autoimmunity. I don't have an autoimmune disease. Why don't I have an autoimmune disease when other people do? We know some of the risk factors. We know some things that can like increase or decrease your risk for developing an autoimmune disease. But in almost every case, the actual initial insult that causes it is pretty mysterious. And there's a bunch of different hypotheses, like is it an infectious agent, you know, mimicry we've talked about? Is it just like random bad luck that some B cell escapes tolerance or some T cell escape tolerance? Um, but in almost every case, we don't know the answer. And in the case of lupus in particular, I feel like there's like their B cells are so messed up. So many different autoreactive um, clones are floating around that even though you have this sort of hallmark of anti-nuclear antibodies or anti-DNA antibodies, knowing where those came from is still uh, pretty tough to get a handle on. Sure, sure. And uh, not to bury the lead, unfortunately, we still at the end of this paper are not going to have a perfect answer to the initiation of autoimmunity question. Um, but what this paper really does a great job of is explaining how an initial break of tolerance can lead to sort of this out-of-control, anti-nuclear, anti-self uh, B-cell response that is uh, a hallmark of both mouse and human lupus. And so in order to tackle this question, they uh, go to a mouse model that's been used for a couple decades now um, to varying degrees of success called the 564 mouse. And the 564 mouse is basically a mouse where uh, knocked into its germline is an autoreactive B cell receptor, right? So the 564 heavy and light chain combination, that B cell receptor is known to target anti-nuclear antigen, or sorry, it's known to target nuclear antigen, right? And so if you create a germline where the mouse, every single cell in its body expresses this recombined germline receptor, it means that a greater than average number of of B cells are going to be autoreactive. And sure enough, if you take a mouse that is homozygous for uh, this 564 B cell receptor, uh, you do get some form of lupus as the mouse ages. So these autoreactive B cells start to dominate the mouse and eventually you get something that phenotypically looks a lot like lupus. Now that doesn't tell you about the normal progression of lupus, right? Because humans do not have 
homozygous, auto-reactive clonal B-cell repertoires. And right? thank God for that. Yeah. And if you do, I'm sorry, it's not going to go well for you in about a year based on the mice that we see. Um, so you can't really learn a whole lot about the progression of disease in this homozygous mouse, right? But one thing that uh, Soren, the first author, noticed or, and uh, starts with in figure one is that even in heterozygous mice, you do get increased germinal center production. So these are mice that have both the noctin receptor, but also have normal receptors, right? So mm, that's actually not true. We haven't gotten to a chimera experiment yet. They're heterozygous, but you'd expect a little conclusion. Um, uh, no, but they they say they say specifically that you still have some number of you still have some number of um, wild type like you do receptors ones that don't come from the the transgene you do and it's about fifty percent and the reason for so yeah so if you knock in a B cell receptor you'd actually expect close to a hundred percent of a mouse's B cells to be idiotype positive right so the five six four receptor positive uh, largely because as the B cell receptor is being selected for or against, that tends to be a trial and error process. So if you have a fully formed receptor that's already being expressed at the beginning of a B-cell differentiation fate, it will more often than not choose that receptor as the receptor it's going to produce, right? So you should have almost 100% of B-cells that sort of select the knocked-in receptor. Um, it's actually not knocked in, it's a transgenic receptor, excuse me. But the reason that you have far fewer than that, so it's only about 50% in these mice, is because uh, B cells are selected for and against based on self-tolerance protocols, right? Just like T cells are, we've discussed that in the past. So in many of these B cells, you will actually choose the receptor, but then notice that it's autoreactive. So basically, allylically exclude that receptor and then go to the other gene or try to find some way of recombining that receptor into a non-autoimmune state, right? So yeah. even in a homozygous 564 mouse, about 50% of the B cells that are there are not this kind of autoreactive clone. Yeah, I think that's worth sort of going over again to, to make it clear. So um, in, a, in a normal wild type immune system, in our immune systems, we have this VDJ, we sort of skipped over VDJ. I know we've discussed it before, but- we have. Um, but B cells and T cells, they they make these receptors from rearranged bits of gene and they normally assemble them randomly. And part of the way that that happens is that when the rearrangement occurs, if the rearrangement forms a productive receptor that can be expressed on the cell surface, that is like a check. And so the, the cell tries to continue with that rearrangement. Because these B cells genetically already have an arranged, rearranged receptor that is a productive rearrangement, generally speaking, that's going to be the one that gets selected. And if you do this, for example, with like an OVA-specific B cell, then basically 100% of those B cells are going to have that OVA-specific B cell receptor that you knocked in because it's already pre-rearranged the natural VDJ recombination basically can't keep up. With yeah, it's basically unnecessary because the B cell right. already found a receptor that works. Right, exactly. But because this is specifically a rearrangement that is an autoreactive B cell receptor, there are mechanisms whereby if a B cell 
starts out with an unproductive rearrangement or with an auto rea- an auto reactive rearrangement, it can basically go back and try again. And this is particularly the case with when it's a heterozygote. So it's got another chromosome that it can try the rearrangement on. But also B cells are able to take the same locus, the same genetic locus that was arranged into an auto reactive B cell and basically try again, do another rearrangement to attempt to get a non-autoreactive receptor. Right, exactly. So basically what we've got here is we've got a model where uh, most B cells or about half B cells are autoreactive because they have this transgenic receptor. The other half have basically some modification of that receptor or a different receptor that's sort of been brought in to take the place of the autoreactive receptor. Um, And as I mentioned before, when you take these mice and you look at them, they develop this lupus phenotype. One of the pieces of that lupus phenotype is that they have tons of germinal centers. So these are basically centers where naive B cells are selected against whatever antigen they're specific for, and they go through somatic hypermutation. So their receptors get better and better at targeting the antigen that they're specific for. And eventually they'll turn into plasma cells and antibody secreting cells. And these are the cells that are gonna give us our antibody repertoire, right? So in active lupus, what you'll find is that you have germinal centers all over the body, basically churning these autoreactive B cells out that are all responding against DNA and RNA and proteins, histones, things like that. And that's basically the source of where these autoreactive antibodies are going to come from. Now, the lab that I'm in would slap me for saying that because there are also cells that are being selected outside of germinal centers. All of those things are true. In this case, we're going to be talking about normal germinal center selection, which is almost certainly happening in lupus. Okay. But let, let's back up for a sec because sure. you said that you're going to get all of these B cells that are against, you know, nucleoproteins and histones and all that stuff. But this transgene is specifically anti-DNA, right? Yes. Yep. So so my naive assumption going into this paper is that you're going to see a huge flood of autoreactive B cells. Yep. And they're all going to be anti-DNA. Yeah. Right. Like that. That would be my hypothesis going into this is that, yeah, this mouse has lupus. That's going to be driven by a huge number of B cells. Fifty percent of the damn B cells coming out of development are anti-DNA. So, of course, you're going to have crazy levels of anti-DNA antibodies. Sure. Sure. And that is literally figure one A and B. Right. So that is the baseline assumption. Right. So what they find is that if you look for germinal center B cells, in a 564 heterologous mouse. So you don't need two copies. You can just get away. Oh, did I not say heterozygous? You said heterologous. <laughs> it's not a heterologous mouse. It's a heterozygous mouse. Um, even in the 564 heterozygous uh, background, you do develop lupus. And as a result, if you look in the spleen and if you look in the lymph nodes, you do see an increase in germinal center B cells as you'd expect. And you'd expect all of those B cells to be anti-DNA, as you just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. But if you look at the spleen and if you look at the lymph node and you look specifically in those germinal center cells, what you find is that only 50% of them are idiotype positive, right? 
which is surprising, right? So you have this clonal system, you'd expect that clonal anti-DNA response to be driving the system. But in actuality, uh, the idiotypes do not make up, the idiotype positive cells do not make up the totality of the germinal center B cell response. Right. I think it's, uh, you said it's 50% of the germinal center B cells. It's actually crazier than that. Yeah, it's right? actually 95. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 50% of the total B cells. Right are idiotype positive right. and like, okay, you can explain that with like, okay, you've got a bunch of these, you know, selection pressures that are getting rid of your autoreactive cells. But when you look at the germinal centers, it's like 90% of the things in the germinal centers, the things that are actually blasting are not the transgene that you knocked in. There's some other idiotype. And maybe we should explain what idiotype is briefly. It's just basically that that specific VDJ rearrangement. Uh, it's not exactly. Um, so idiotype basically means the portion of the antibody that actually does the recognizing, right? That's that's essentially all it is. And the way that you determine the idiotype is that you have another antibody that recognizes the face of your autoreactive antibody. So basically, you take this B cell, and if it has a 564, you know, traditional receptor, then this other antibody that you have will bind to it, right? Right. If you if the antibody does not bind, it is idiotype negative, right? Right. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the VDJ is different. It doesn't even necessarily right. mean that the specificity is different. Right. All right. it tells you is that something has changed on the face of that antibody through mutation, through whatever process that the antibody that you have to detect it no longer detects it. Right. So you have to take this sort of idiotype frequency with a grain of salt. It doesn't give you a really clear picture of what's actually going on, which is why they have to do so much sequencing in this paper. Right. So uh, one of the other interesting things about this system, this heteral <laughs> heterozygous, I'm going to keep doing it, this heterozygous 564 system is that the knock-in B cell receptor has a different isotype background than the other allele, right? So whereas normal black six mice express IgG2C, uh, which is a type of IgG antibody, basically, it's an idiotype. Um, sorry, it's an isotype. Um, <laughs> Oh, good. It's not just me. <laughs> yeah, it's an isotype. Uh, these 564 B cells express IgG2A, right? So you can tell the difference between antibodies that came from the 564 cells versus other cells. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you go into these mice that have all of these germinal centers, if all of the germinal centers are a result of the anti-DNA B cells that you just put in there, you'd expect all of the anti-nucleolar uh, serum, all of the anti-nuclear serum basically to be IgG2A, right? right? But if you're getting contribution from cells that are not the cells that you put in there that are autoreactive, you'd start to expect to see an IgG2C response. And that's exactly what they see in 1F and 1G. Basically, they're starting to get an indication that it's not just these idiotype positive cells that are contributing to the uh, autoimmune response. Um, and, and I think the the comparison between F and G is is really cool because you can see so in when they're just looking at total anti-nuclear serum IgG, the both the heterozygous and the homozygous uh, transgenic mice have basically the same amount of total IgG that's anti-nucleolar. But when you just are looking at specifically the IgG2C, you only see it 
in the het mice. You don't see it in the homozygous mice. Right. Which I'm going I think to, is like a really nice I'm control do one for thing that you like, said, uh, which I don't is know, I just, that they're I found expressing that really almost the same amount. Uh, um, no, not almost the same amount, but you you don't see any anti-nucleolar IgG2C in the homozygous mice. No, that is definitely true. Uh, but and this is one thing that I did have a problem with, and I actually reached out to Soren because Soren is probably amongst the best scientists that I've ever encountered. He's super bright and he knows Eliza's back and forward like that is his bread and butter. And he's the person that taught me how to do Eliza's. And he used to yell at me for reporting OD values in lab meeting. <laughs> and so I was shocked to see that he had a cell paper with OD values in this. Um, mm. the, the reason why that's a problem for those of you that don't do Eliza's all the time is we can determine differences between groups in an experiment like this because the p-values are not lying to us. Uh, there you know, is a verifiable difference statistically, but we can't tell what the magnitude of these responses look like even a little bit, right? And so an antibody response, uh, as far as titers go, can span like six logs of response. And so a difference between groups can either be twofold or it can be like, two million fold and the difference between a two fold difference and a two million fold difference is a huge difference biologically are, are you talking about to compare f to g no i'm talking to, to compare groups in f to each other right so i know that b6s are different from five six four hets and I know that they're different from five six uh, five six four with no kappa knock in, right? That that is clear. Although those say non-significant, which means that I don't know that, right? What I can't do is I can't look at five six four hets and five six four homozygotes and say that there's no difference there, right? I can't say that with any accuracy because the dynamic range on an ELISA is nowhere close to the dynamic range of an antibody response. So those two groups don't look different to me, but I have no way of telling if they actually are different or not because I have no standardization on the assay. Mm. See what I'm saying? So it's just that the range of this environment, this experimental environment, does not encompass the biological range even close. And so you have to just be really careful in drawing conclusions uh, when you're reporting OD values versus actual titers. And so I did reach out to him and he said that they probably should have done it for a cell paper a different way, um, but that the differences between the groups hold. And he's absolutely right, but I'm still going to beat on him a little bit for it. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So moving on from my one criticism of this paper. Uh <laughs> So then they start to get into some pretty cool visual stuff. And uh, the cool visual stuff is going to become a hallmark of this paper moving on out. So great stuff for audio, by the way. Yeah, you should follow along at home. We have the paper posted to the website. You so absolutely should. So head on over to immunity.org slash audio immunity and find this post and download the paper. Right. Because it's good paper and it's yeah. got lots of pretty colors. And it's probably behind a paywall, but if you happen to email one of the people at Audio Immunity to ask for a PDF, there's a decent chance that it's going to arrive in your inbox. Yeah. Can't say how, but it probably will. Yeah, it'll be surprising. Um, so imagine a world where you could take a B cell and if that B cell were to be, let's say, included in a germinal center and at the same time exposed to an S 
uh, estrogen analog, that that cell would become yellow. <laughs> Why is that important? That is a strange <laughs> world, Matt. <laughs> Why is that important? Well, what that means is basically you can take a mouse. These are the five, six, four mice, and they're crossed against the AID Cree ERT2 EYFP reporter backgrounds. <laughs> Okay. Now, what does that oh, background immunology, do? I've missed you so much. Yeah. What does that background do? Well, it just it does all the things that I just said uh, existed in this world. Basically, in this mouse, if you expose the mouse to tamoxifen, which is an estrogen receptor analog, I think it's an analog, isn't it? It's not naturally occurring. It might be naturally occurring. I'm not sure. Tamoxifen? Tamoxifen is a drug that basically turns yeah. and hits this estrogen receptor. And if a cell is in a germinal center and it's expressing this gene AID, which is important in germinal center function, and it gets hit with tamoxifen, it will turn on a YFP, yellow fluorescent reporter gene. So if you have this mouse and it has active germinal centers and you give it tamoxifen, all of the germinal center B cells will turn green. And this is this specifically is a a permanent reporter. So all it's it's all of the B cells that were present at the moment that you treated with tamoxifen. Right. Are going to permanently turn on this YFP gene. So you don't have to like keep giving these mice tamoxifen. You don't have to like worry about all the new B cells that are being formed in the meantime turning green. It's just the ones that were present in the mouse at the time of the treatment. Those basically get an on switch flipped and they become green forever. Right. It's a really neat tool. And importantly, all of their progeny as well, because this is a germline right. flip, which means if these cells divide and if they mutate and they do whatever it is B cells do in the germinal center, Very all of point. their progeny in addition to them will be yellow, right? So yeah. it's it's a fluorescent pulse chase experiment, basically, right? So, well, but... but yeah, pulse chase would get diluted out after division. The the point oh, that's that you made point. about it sticking yeah. with the the progeny is actually for particularly for cells that will blast and make clones of themselves, like B cells and T cells. Uh, that ability to be propagated to progeny is actually really critical. Yeah, you're right. It's just a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. If you take these cells, if you take these mice, and if the underlying, if the null hypothesis is that these idiotype positive cells are the ones that participate in germinal centers, and you cross them with these reporter mice, and you hit them with tamoxifen, and you, let's say you wait four weeks, and you start to look at germinal centers, you would expect that all of your YFP positive germinal center B cells would be from this autoimmune background, right? Does that make sense? Right. Yes. That's not what they see. Uh, what they see is that even though the YFP positive cells dilute, as you might expect, because cells die off in germinal centers and all those things, so they go out to like day 100, you start to see an eventual loss in germinal center YFP positive cells. If you look at the idiotype negative cells, they do not decrease. So really what they find is that of the YFP positive cells, of the cells that were in the germinal center, the ones that really persisted were actually not the ones that were autoreactive to begin with. It's all of the rest of them. Yeah. Which is crazy. Kind of kind of like shocking differences yeah. in those populations. Right. And it's like it's the opposite, basically, of what you'd expect. The the bulk of the cells participating in these germinal centers are not the ones that were autoreactive to kick off the immune response. So that forms the basis 
of the whole rest of the paper, essentially, right? The question now is why aren't these idiotype positive cells? First of all, like, is that true, what we just saw? And then, like, why aren't these idiotype positive cells there anymore? So they move on, and there's one criticism of this model, and that is that every single cell, and we talked about how the genetics of this works, every single cell that's a B cell starts with this idiotype receptor, even if it doesn't turn into an idiotype positive B cell because of all of the things that we discussed as far as negative selection, all of the cells have this knock-in receptor. So you can't really draw a lot of conclusions because there are no B cells that are really wild type in the system, right? However, we're immunologists, we can create bone marrow chimeras, which means that we can take a normal mouse, we can irradiate it so we can get rid of its B cell pool, we can reconstitute it with knock-in B cells as well as germline B cells, normal wild type B cells. So now these are mice where a significant portion of its bone marrow are not these altered cells, they're actually just normal everyday wild type B cells, right? And so what do you get when you make this chimera? And uh, as you might expect from figure one, as it turns out, basically throughout figure two, they show that just the presence of these autoreactive B cells will alter wild type B cells that exist in everyday or ordinary mice to incorporate themselves into germinal centers. Yeah, and I love that it's titratable too. Like they do multiple doses essentially of the autoreactive B cells and Effectively, the more of the autoreactive ones you have, the more of the wild type ones get induced to be autoreactive themselves. That's like such a beautiful result. I I was really impressed by this figure. Yeah, no, it's really it's a cool finding. And, you know, just going all the way to the end here to I, uh, what's striking to me is you've got uh, CD45-1, which is a marker for your wild type B cells, and CD45-2, which is a marker for your autoreactive idiotype B cells. And Basically, the same as you saw in figure one in the more modified genetic background is that your wild type B cells begin to dominate these germinal center responses. It's not the the autoreactive cells that are really there as you look long term in these mice. So it really is the wild type cells that are coming in and populating these B cell responses. So then we have to get into the genetics, right? Because we can sort of see YFPB cells. Uh, we can start to get a sense of what we think might be going on. But until you really show somebody the lineages of B cells that are incorporating into these germinal centers, you can't really say all that much about what's truly happening in the selection process. And this is where they introduced their second crazy uh, fluorescence imaging technique, which is the photoactivatable gene. So basically what you've got here is you've got a mouse where uh, it essentially has a GFP reporter, green fluorescent protein reporter, on a two-photon inducible trigger. So if I take this mouse and I shave it so its skin is bare and I hit it with the right wavelength of two-photon light, that skin, the skin of that mouse, will all of a sudden start glowing green. And it's not just the skin of the mouse that will glow green. You can also take a spleen out, for example, and you can hit that spleen with two-photon light, and the part of the spleen that you hit will glow green. Can we just pause for a moment and recognize that biologists are gods? (laughs) Like it is freaky, the level of control we have over biological systems, and it's only getting crazier and crazier. Like I remember I remember sitting in an immunology class 
almost 10 years ago now and being like, holy stuff that we can do is crazy. And it has just kept accelerating since then. Yeah, no, it's not backing down either. Uh, There's some pretty cool stuff going on. So um, but basically what these guys can do, you know, I just mentioned the spleen and I mentioned before that these germinal centers are in a spleen, which means that basically you can find these germinal centers in explanted spleens. You can photo activate a single germinal center and then you can mash up the spleen, run it through a flow sorter and pick out only the cells that were in that one germinal center. So now you can, oh, and then I'm sorry, you can single cell sort and single cell sequence each one of those green mm-hmm. cells, right? Mm-hmm. Which which means that you can get essentially a lineage tree of all of the cells as they're developing in a single germinal center. And what do they find? Well, they find that as it turns out, you have some uh, V regions, some pieces of these regions combined antibodies that are not from the idiotype uh, cells that you put in. Although, interestingly, they're pretty highly related to those idiotype positive cells. So basically what you get is you get this big tree where your 564 cells definitely are sort of related to this tree, but they're probably not the germline cell. So what they find is that there is this sort of putative precursor autoreactive cell that gives rise to this whole big tree of potentially autoreactive cells. I'm not sure if I explained that well. I mean, I think it is very difficult to explain given how many how many things you need to understand about B cells going into this. Sure. Um, and we just don't have the time to describe VDJ recombination and B cell development to the extent that we would need to um, to make it clear. I think I mean, I have only a vague understanding of this not being a B cell expert. Yeah. Um, but but basically just the, the notion here is that literally having autoreactive B cells around is sufficient to drive other non-autoreactive B cells to become activated and change into essentially autoreactive B cells. Or maybe they might have been autoreactive, but below some threshold of activity where they weren't going to develop into activated autoreactive B cells. But the presence of autoreactive B cells basically induces these cells that would not otherwise have been able to become pathogenic to get over that activation hump and start causing disease. Yeah, no, I think that that is the the critical point to make is that what they're showing here basically is that when you have these autoreactive cells, the surrounding cells that all evidence points to the fact that they would not have formed autoimmune responses now are sort of given the green light and they just form these germinal center reactions. They start mutating like crazy. They have uh, a whole lot of data in this paper suggesting that they start to diversify their autoreactive targets. Essentially, what they're showing here is a very detailed description of this notion of epitope spreading that we've been talking about for so long, right? They are tracking the genetics of epitope spreading and clonal diversification in B cells in an autoimmune setting, right? In wild type cells, which is why this is really cool. This is no longer really, you know, manipulated genetic modeling. Now we're talking about actual wild type autoimmune progression. Right. And and so, yeah, maybe another way to 
to describe this is to say that if central tolerance were perfect, and so actually I should back up and describe central versus peripheral tolerance. So there's, there's <laughs> the, these ideas that in autoimmunity, there are basically two things, two broad classes of things that protect us. So one of them is central tolerance, which is during B and T cell development, before you reach the stage where you are a naive cell floating around in circulation, you go through central tolerance and many, many autoreactive cells are deleted at that stage. They reacted against self, they got a death signal, and they died. So they never make it into what we call the periphery. They never make it out into lymph nodes or the spleen or in the blood. Then there is, and it used to be that sort of central tolerance was like the thing. Everybody was like thymic selection for T cells, bone marrow selection for B cells, like that's what the deal is. Then it became clear that central tolerance was not enough. And actually you have all of these other mechanisms that even if an autoreactive cell scrapes by and gets through the central tolerance mechanisms, it can still be either deleted in the periphery or just never reaches either, you know, it can become energic or it won't receive sufficient signal to become an active cell. And a naive autoreactive cell that's floating around and never gets stimulated is not a threat. Right. What this is showing is that we have these autoreactive cells in the periphery and the presence of other autoreactive cells, other cells that have maybe different targets, you know, they have different receptors. Those cells becoming activated can induce activation in these other cells that would otherwise just, you know, live their whole lives and never get activated and not cause any problems. Right. And, you know, even extending that one step further and, you know, getting into the next figure a little bit, figure four, not only can these autoreactive cells induce initially quiescent cells to become reactive, right? You can even get rid of the initial autoreactive cells and you are already too far gone, right? Those cells, the peripheral cells that would have normally not become autoreactive that are now seeding those germinal centers are not dependent on the initial autoreactive cell in order to now create a full germinal center response. And so the way they do this basically is by putting a kill switch on those autoreactive B cells through this fun genetic trip <laughs> trick that I will not get into <laughs> because we've already gone through two of them now. Um, but basically what they can do is they can uh, create the same system, put in these autoreactive cells, wait for germinal centers to develop, and then kill all of the initial autoreactive cells. And what they find is that really does not destroy your autoreactivity anymore because all of those bystander cells have now basically taken over the autoimmune reaction and are perfectly capable of sustaining it once this blockade is already gone, which is unfortunate for uh, from a treatment perspective, from a human perspective, because it means that even if you find a way to target the cells that right now are sort of generating the autoimmune response, just getting rid of those cells isn't necessarily going to shut down the progression of the B cell response. Right. And, and this is not terribly surprising, but it is rather unfortunate. Right. Um, there is another, you know, I don't want to go too far into the imaging detail here. There's another figure, figure five, that basically shows that 
These germinal centers behave rather similarly to the way that germinal centers behave in a vaccination setting. They undergo somatic hypermutation, they undergo selection, you know, they're they're behaving basically normally. And they essentially show as as the paper goes on that, you know, not only are these new cells being incorporated into the germinal centers, they're not even staying with the same targets. So that initial 564 receptor was really good at targeting single-stranded DNA. The eventual response will target lots of other things like VEGF, catalase, uh, BPI, collagen, things that are known to be involved in autoimmune responses but are not responded against by the 564 clone. So essentially what they're showing is once these germinal centers ramp up and you start incorporating these wild type B cells, not only do you get different lineages of cells, you also get different targeting. And they finally go on to say, you know, we find a lot of these differential targets like collagen, we find these antibodies deposited in the kidney. And the kidney is where a lot of these autoantigens, or I'm sorry, autoantibodies will wind up in humans. And this is a big symptom of lupus. Uh, almost 50% of lupus patients will develop nephritis, right? Kidney failure, essentially, or kidney impairments over the course of their disease. So basically what they're showing here, like I said, is a really detailed genetic explanation for exactly how this phenomenon of epitope spreading is really occurring in a lupus background. But there is an interesting point based on the what I see as sort of the breadth of these findings, because I, I think that it's a really cool set of results. So one of the questions that I came away with was, if this is the case, right, if this one autoreactive cell and these initial germinal centers can draw in new B cells, right, where is the restriction? Why doesn't everybody that has an autoimmune B cell centric disease develop the same double stranded DNA problem? That is a good question. Do you have an answer? I have no idea. No, I have no <laughs> idea. So, I mean, presumably there's some sharing of T cell help. Um, and things like that where, you know, B cells, when they pick up their antigen, can sort of help their neighbors by presenting that antigen, help the T cells. So it, it's possible that you do get epitope spreading, but it's slow and the epitopes have to be sort of related to each other. Um, but it's surprising to me that there is not more of a spread in a human setting if this if this phenomenon is as true as it looks to be, um, it's it seems to me that there must be some mechanisms of tolerance that we don't understand well enough to explain why when somebody breaks B-cell tolerance, they just don't become a massive pool of B-cell response and die. So it's a really great point. It did not occur to me when I was reading this paper, but try this hypothesis on. Let me All know right. what you think. All right. So DNA is present in every cell. And when cells die, they release some amount of DNA. Obviously, it's cleaned up as quickly as possible. Apoptosis, generally, DNA is degraded, but there's a lot of DNA around. DNA sticks to a lot of things, and basically any cell is a, is going to any cell, any protein coming from a dying cell is going to be associated with DNA. It's like the most nonspecific you can possibly be. Whereas if you have a B cell that's like specific for, I don't know, myelin in MS, not every cell is going to express myelin. You're probably not having a lot of myelin in the brain draining lymph nodes that actually make it there intact. And it's 
even if you did, it's only going to be in those specific lymph nodes. So the the universe of possible epitopes that you could spread to is going to be necessarily confined. And maybe if we had people that lived like 500 years with MS, you might see epitopes spreading to more epitopes, but it just generally doesn't happen because people don't live long enough, essentially. Whereas when you have anti-DNA antibodies or anti-nucleolar antibodies, these things are present in every cell, every lymph node, anywhere where their cells dying, which is everywhere, are going to have these epitopes around. And therefore, you know, if, if the threshold for activation, it'll only happens one every thousand times if you've got a thousand cells versus a billion cells it's a big difference in terms of uh possible new activations sure yeah and that compounds on itself obviously over time so you're so you're making the argument that so okay so that covers spread from sparse antigens to dominant antigens right is that just the sparse antigens don't are are sort of geographically restricted i'm i'm saying that like let's say you had somebody with ms yeah and for whatever reason there was epitope spreading in ms to an anti-nucleolar antibody yeah i bet that person would end up with lupus-like symptoms i bet that person would like have continued spreading out from that antigen to lots of other stuff interesting but i'm not i'm not so sure that i buy that um only because so ms is an interesting one because you do have actual geographic segregation and i could see that one not spreading so much but let's assume something like type 1 diabetes where you've got direct attack by antibodies on islet cells. Right. I guess I would expect that the DNA from that, it would it seems like an obvious progression to me to develop lupus in lots of autoimmune diseases where we don't necessarily see lupus as like an eventual development of their autoimmunity. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I feel yeah. like there is lots of cell death in a lot of autoimmunity where you don't eventually get lupus like symptoms. Yeah, that's definitely true. It, it might just be. I mean, I'm thinking of it in terms of probabilities and sure. Uh, I, look, you may be right. I don't have a good answer, um, but it, it is <laughs> no, confusing to me because sure. I yeah, I, I think that there probably is something here that we don't quite understand all that well. And they do get a little into it in the discussion. Uh, we should probably let our readers get into the discussion and see what they think. And if anybody uh, has any solutions as to <laughs> why this might be, you should email us uh, because it would be news to us. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Comments at immunity.org. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you can, or you can uh, leave a comment on our Facebook page. We post every episode there. Um, Facebook.com slash audio immunity. Um, you can hop on patreon.com and while you are donating, you can also leave us a comment there um, and tell us what your hypothesis is. I wonder, is there is there another antigen that is as ubiquitous as DNA that if you could like make a mouse chimera for some other like unrelated but also really common like, like an actin or something. Like an anti-collagen, for example. Yeah. And they do find collagen eventually on this spectrum. Now, I don't know if tar- if collagen is targeted in other autoimmunity because you'd want something ubiquitous but not related to lupus. But even collagen, like collagen isn't expressed by every cell type, right? True. Like it's present in, in every tissue, but it's not right. being made by every cell type. Anyway, um, if you have ideas for that or anything else, <laughs> um, 
emails, Facebook, patreon.com. You can message me on Twitter at Kevin Bonham or at Kev Bonham, rather. And there are links on uh, immunity.org. Also, responding to this is sort of random responding to a question posed to us on Immune, which is the uh, microbe.tv podcast hosted by Vincent Racaniello. Yes. They were asking about finding like particular topics, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, for most episodes, I tag the episodes with particular, like in this episode, it'll be tagged with antibodies, autoimmunity, lupus, and B cells or something like that. And so I, I typically try to sort of tag the the most relevant concepts. And, and I just added to the website based on that comment from uh, Steve, I think, I added a, a sidebar on the side that shows all of the tags um, and so you can just click on those and find all of the episodes that correspond to that tag um, if you are interested in a particular topic nothing like a good searchable data set yeah you know that would be that would be nice if there was actually robust search um, <laughs> maybe you should just try like you know immunity.org on google plus whatever search terms you're interested in. They're probably better at it than we are. Our titles are are not usually very related uh, <laughs> to the episode topic, but, you know, I think that's one of our charms. You should, something we haven't been asking for recently, other than liking us on Facebook and donating to us on Patreon, I haven't been asking people to leave reviews for us on iTunes and Stitcher and other podcast distribution sites, but if you can, that would be really great. We're trying to grow our audience. It actually is growing slowly but steadily since we've started posting new episodes, but if you could share it with your friends, you know, if you have lab mates that need something to do in the tissue culture hood, you know, maybe pass our podcast along as a suggestion. And... I don't think there's anything else. The next episode is going to be missing me because I'm going on a crazy trip to three continents in 10 days. So it'll be much shorter. (laughs) Yes, very possibly. Although Kate's going to be back, I think. So maybe not. Mm. Hopefully everyone will have a beer that is paid for by our Patreon supporters. And with that, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.